Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. My name's Matt. Um, it's my privilege to be here. As I said, I'm part of the teaching team at uh, New Spring, and I, I guess I'm still getting used to this idea here at Cullamunda as well. So um, it's a real privilege to be here, happy to be here. My wife and family couldn't be here, unfortunately. Um, my wife's got this flu thing going on. It's not COVID, it's okay. Um, she, gets, she gets this cough thing every year. She, she's not well, so please pray for her. Um, but she still had to get up and get ready because the, the, our two young kids were, were serving at church today, so they wanted to be there, which is great. So I'm not sure what she's doing, probably sitting in the car whilst they do their thing, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, it's my privilege to be here. And we're uh, going to dive straight into this uh, second uh, part of the book of Ephesians. Dave was here last week, that's correct, isn't it? I hope you heard what he said. If you haven't, please jump on the uh, pod, on the webpage, either, either the Calamander Church or the New Spring Church, and, and download the podcast and have a listen. Um, his message, I think, was called Living for His Fame, and it was from verses 1 to 14 of, of 1st Ephesians. Um, and so I'm going to kind of come off the back of that as we look at uh, verses 15 uh, to 23. And you might remember Dave saying, uh, if you were here, and I'm just going to recap it very quickly, that in the opening verses of chapter 1, Paul, Paul pours out an avalanche of praise, listing the many, many, many spiritual blessings that we have because of our union with Jesus Christ. Do you recall that? And we've even been talking and singing about it this morning, which is great. And he reminds us that God is so rich in kindness and grace that he has not only forgiven our sin, but he's purchased our freedom. That, that's just enough to meditate on for the rest of the day in its own self. And this all was accomplished through the sacrifice of the blood of his son, Jesus. Paul also tells us that God has revealed to us his plan in regard to his son. He said that, the right, that at the right time he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. And before we move in today's, into today's section, I just wanted to highlight one key aspect from the, from the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 1 that I think are really important for us to get our heads around as we move forward into this passage and in particular, in verses 3 to 12, I want you to notice, and if you've got your Bibles, you can have a look, and we'll just do this really quickly. I want you to notice all the pronouns, us and we. I'm sorry if you didn't think you were getting an English lesson today, but there are a, a, a string of pronouns, us and we. And it's important that we just notice, I'll, I'll just pick out a few really quickly, starting from verse 3. All praise to, praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be, to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ. And it goes on, us, we, us, we. And it's important to note that when Paul uses the pronouns us and we, he's talking about the nation of Israel here. And he kind of makes that quite clear. But in verse 13, there's a notable shift. Have a look at it. And now you, Gentiles, see the shift? Us, we, us, we, us, we. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. And of course, Paul's writing this way because he is in fact predominantly writing to Gentile believers in the church in and around Ephesus. 
But more importantly for our study this morning, I want you to notice from verse, four, verse 14 onwards, Paul transitions back to the pronouns us and we. But this time he means both Jews and Gentiles. In particular, verse 14, the Spirit, of God, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. And then pretty much, unless it specifically says so according to the context, the rest of Ephesians is us and we, meaning Jew and Gentile. That's the, that's the big picture of who he's writing to. The Holy Spirit is their guarantee that God would give them an inheritance that was promised. The Holy Spirit is their guarantee that God has indeed purchased them both, Jew and Gentile, to be his own people. And to what end it says that they might praise and glorify him. Amen. And what a wonderful word of encouragement that must have been to the church in Ephesus, to the believers there, that all the spiritual blessings... All the things that God had promised, he has poured out, that he promised he would pour out on his chosen people, are also meant now for Gentile believers. There is no more us and them. The kingdom of God that Jesus came to reveal is all-inclusive for those who will believe. And this is a radical change, it's a radical shift. And, and Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus to remind them that this is actually the case. He's not admonishing them, he's not telling them off, he's not correcting any doctrine. He's just writing to say, glory to God who's poured out all this, all through history, and now it's for you as well, praise the Lord, he says. And he's encouraging them. It seems obvious to me and to other commentators as well, I'll confess, that when you read through the book of Ephesians, this, this epistle, this letter to the church in Ephesus, you get a sense that Paul has a great uh, sense of joy in them. He loves them. The church in Ephesus was born when Paul first went there during his second missionary journey around 52 AD. And then a few years later on his third missionary journey, somewhere between 54 and 56 AD, Paul actually stayed there for more than two years, two to three years, teaching and encouraging and evangelising. He lived there for a while. It was a place that he knew well. And so it stands to reason, I think, that he had developed a love for the church there. And that comes through in his writing. However, at the time of the writing of this particular letter, all that was a decade ago. He's now 10 years into the future and it would seem to me from verse 15 that Paul has somehow been informed or heard about the believers in Ephesus and the fact that they're still going strong in their faith and that brings him great joy and so he writes to them to encourage them. He sends them a letter that actually commends their love and their faith and as you read through Ephesians you get a real sense that actually as a church they've done very well. They appear to be devout in their belief and in their practice. They seem to be well organised and they're busy preaching the gospel. What a great church. 
And in fact, in the time since Paul lived there, in the, in the, in the nine or ten years since he was there, the church actually had been growing and expanding. And Jews and Gentiles alike from, from multiple nationalities and ethnicities had gathered into the church at Ephesus. It was multicultural, multi-generational, probably multilingual. And it was growing and it was vibrant and it was healthy and this brought Paul great joy. Of course it would because he founded it. And in many ways I think the church at Ephesus had become what we might call a model church. And here we are 10 years now down the track and Paul's writing to encourage them to continue in the faith. So let's pick up today at at verse 15 of chapter 1 of Ephesians and we're just going to walk through this because... You know, you, you, you know when you know stuff, but when you revisit it from a different perspective, it just kind of pops out at you. Have you had that experience? I have that a lot lately. It's been great. It's kind of one of those moments for me, in particular in one point. But we're going to have a look at a couple of points from this passage, which I hope will encourage you as a church uh, to, to live like this. Verse 15, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Does anyone want to know God better here? Great. Me too. I want to know him better. In his book, God's Ultimate Purpose, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this statement, our supreme need is to know God. And I can't remember the name, it's probably someone famous, so I'm embarrassed to tell you I don't know. Didn't someone else say uh, that's the ultimate purpose of man, to, to praise and worship God or to know God? Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, put it this way, eternal life means to know and experience you as the only true God and to know and experience Jesus Christ as the Son who you sent. Do you long to know God? That's not rhetorical, by the way. Do you long to know him? I do. Do you long to know him well? Do you long to know him deeply? Do you long to know him truly? Of course you do. Of course you do, because you are made to. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. Paul wants the believers in Ephesus to really know God. And he prays, uh, he prays that God might give them a spiritual wisdom or the spirit of wisdom as well as insight. Why? So that they might grow. And more specifically in their case, that they might continue to grow in their knowledge of him. It's, ex- it's very significant, I think, to note that this word knowledge in verse 17 is uh, the Greek word epignosis. It literally means a specific understanding of a certain thing or truth. It implies to be sure of something in one's mind. It's a cognitive acceptance of the facts as presented. And in this case, those being the spiritual blessings listed in the previous verses that they are chosen by the Father, fact. They are redeemed and set free by the Son, fact. That 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 the revelation of God's eternal purpose is revealed through Jesus, fact. That our guaranteed inheritance is sealed in us by the giving of the Holy Spirit, fact. Do you believe it? Do you understand it? Do you know it here cognitively? No, it's not airy-fairy. It's not a feeling. It's not a... Maybe 
It's I believe it. It's concrete, as we would say in adolescent or child development. It's concrete. It's true because it's true. Because God said it's true. And, and I believe it. It's, it's in the mind, it's in the head, it's in the intellect. To put it another way, what Paul is saying is this. Because God has given you such a wealth of spiritual blessings, I pray that he would grant you a deeper knowledge of him. But Paul knows that it can't just be an intellectual understanding. It's more than that. And where verse 17 invites the believers to grow in their knowledge of God, in their understanding of who he is and what he has done for them, in verse 18 he takes it to a whole other level. He says, I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Literally that phrase, it's beautiful, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Isn't that beautiful? That the eyes of your heart would be lighted. I looked up this, this phrase in Greek and it's reasonably complex, but it has this idea, you know, when we say to one another, oh, do you see, you know, when you're trying to explain something technical and you say to them, do you see what I mean? You know that phrase? And really what we're saying is, do you, do you, can you see it with the eyes of your mind? Do you, do you see it? Do you, that's what he's talking about, except now he's talking about the heart. And we often say things like, um, you know, we feel it or we experience it. But, but what Paul is, is a beautiful word picture, that, that, that your heart, the seat of emotion in Scripture... The, the seat of emotion, that, that it's got like windows that would fly open and God's glorious truth and light would flood in. What, what, a, what a wonderful picture that we'd see with our heart these truths. As I said, the heart is the seat of emotions. It represents in, in Scripture our inner being, the core of who we are. And importantly, it's the place where the will resides. Now, we're not talking about the cognitive will where I choose to do what I like because I'm autonomous. <laughs> you know, I, I will eat whatever I want and no matter what my wife says, I don't care that it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm choosing to be, you know, not that type of will. It's a will that comes from here where something is so important to you, where your values and, and the core of who you are um, is, so, is so strong um, that, that you have or you must act. It's, it's that will. It's the, it's the inner self. Does that make sense? It's not just our intellectual grasp of the truth that Paul is praying for here. He wants the knowledge of who God is to grip our emotion, our will, our very core. Again, as Jesus puts it in John 17, to know, to know and experience you as the only true God. To know and experience Jesus Christ as the Son whom you have sent. Paul goes on to highlight two specific things. He says that we need to know and experience about God. And the first can be found uh, in verse 18. I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he has called, his holy people who are rich, uh, who are his rich and glorious in inheritance. This is a truth that I've only really begun to grasp in the last 8 to 12 months, I must tell you. You see, when we hear the word inheritance, we tend to think in terms of the inheritance we have in God, 
which is good. We can think that way because it's a biblical concept. The scripture talks about this inheritance we have in God in so many different places, too many to even look at now. Uh, Because we have been included in God's family, adopted as sons and daughters into his estate, we have all that we need as God's children to thrive. Dave talked about that last week. Do you recall that? Nothing is withheld from us as, as sons and daughters of God. You know, he used the story of the prodigal son to, to illustrate that passage. Do you recall? And in particular, the father's response to the eldest son who had a hissy fit because his younger brother had been welcomed back unconditionally. Do you remember what the father said to him? He said, son, everything I have is already yours. It's already yours. Well, that's our position in God as, as his heirs. Everything that he has is already ours. When we belong to God's family, we have access to all God's gifts and blessings. It's like having unlimited and unrestricted access to his resources. We can go to the well and draw out at any time, any time, whatever we need to live as his children. It's like having permission to go to the fridge. (laughs) That's a bad example, isn't it? (laughs) It's so much better than that. But we can go to his well and draw out anything we need to live this life well. Strength, comfort, encouragement, faith, wisdom, the list goes on and on and on and on. There are so many, it's too many to list here now. Whatever you need, whatever you need to live this life well, for his glory and according to his purpose for you, you can freely get from your heavenly father. That's good news. But more than that, our inheritance in God is the promise of our future with him in heaven. 1 Peter 1.4 tells us that we have been born again into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. That's also good news. It's unspoiled, unfading and totally reserved for us. And that is why Paul reminds the Ephesian church when he says, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. That spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. Of course, he's talking about the Jews there, but of course we now know that that also applies to the Gentiles. I hope they were gentle Gentiles. So in simple terms, our inheritance in God is not just all that we need in this life, but all that we have to look forward to in the next. But in verse 18, that's not what Paul's talking about. Look carefully. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who who are his rich inheritance. Not our inheritance, his rich inheritance. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before or thought very deeply about this idea, that as children of God, we are his inheritance. What does that mean? What does that look like? Paul here is talking about God's inheritance in us and more importantly, the enrichment that will come to our lives when we discover what it means to to actually let God have what is his. 
us, his inheritance. It's a bit of a mind bender, that one, but it's important for us to get, it, to get this kind of, to understand this. What does it mean that we are God's inheritance? And as I looked into this, it became clearer to me as I thought about it and read about it, that you actually can't talk about inheritance unless you talk about heritage, because the two are very connected. And all through the scriptures, we find references to God calling a people to be his treasured possession, a people who would be set apart, whose identity comes from their close relationship with God. Those people, of course, were the nation of Israel. God made Israel his heritage, not because they were strong or wealthy or large as a nation, nothing like that. There was nothing impressive about the nation of Israel that made God choose them. To the contrary, in fact, they were weak and small and poor compared to the other nations. And Moses reminds the people uh, in one of his speeches in Deuteronomy chapter 10 when he says, the Lord chose your ancestors as objects of his love. He chose you, their descendants, above all other nations. We have a heritage in God because he chose us. We have an inheritance because he chose us. That's a big concept, one worth meditating on. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about back in verse 5, that after thousands of years uh, of God dealing almost exclusively with the nation of Israel, through Christ, God has broken down the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile. And that means that anyone who puts their hope and faith and trust in Christ and believes in the gospel are God's inheritance. They are his heritage. Let me put it in simple terms. We have an inheritance in Christ because we are the heritage of Christ. And when we step into this relationship that we were actually created for in the first place, it actually brings God great joy. Did you know that? It brings in great joy. And Paul wants us to live in that place. This is what he's saying to the Ephesians here. To know him well, to know him deeply, to know him truly, so that our lives might glorify his name and bring him joy. That's what it means to worship and praise God. That we might know him well. That we might know him deeply. That we might know him truly. And that our lives might bring him great joy as we kind of operate in that place. That could have been the end of one message, but I wanted to fit in the next bit as well, so we're going to do that. So kind of like part A, part B. So I don't really have a conclusion for that section, but I'm actually happy to let you just sit in that because I know it's a big thing to think about. And, and, I, and I'm, I guess I'm pleading with you, I'm inviting you to go and meditate on the meaning of what it means to be God's inheritance this week and the, the joy it brings God. And in particular, we don't have time necessarily to bring that out now, but there's this idea in other scripture that, that when, we, when we live and operate in the gifts that he's freely given us, that brings him joy. Parents, you know what it's like when you, when you train and equip your children, whether it's in obedience or um, in, in values or, or ethics or whatever it is, and then you see them living that out for themselves, what joy that brings you. Have you had that experience? Maybe you've had the opposite experience where they don't do what you thought they should and, and it breaks your heart. But you love them, so you train them and you discipline them and you keep working at it. It's that kind of joy but multiplied. 
sometimes I think we put God way up here when really he's just here. Our Father, who, who delights in his children. So yeah, go and think about that for a few days. <laughs> what it means to be his inheritance. See, the second thing that Paul wants, wants us to know, or that he says he, that we need to know as we ex- know and experience God, is his power. Verse 19, and of course this is all a prayer that he's praying for these people. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honour at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. It's important to note that when, Paul, uh, that when we read the phrase God's power for us, we need to understand that what Paul means is God's power at work in us. That, that's how it kind of breaks out in, the, in Greek. God's power at work in us. And he picks up this idea later in his letter in Ephesians chapter 3.20, and we'll come to that in a few weeks, I suppose, where he says, Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Like shoes for a child or fly screen for a door or courage to get through a day or strength to face an enemy or, or an adversary. Things that we could never do on our own, that seem impossible, are quite possible when we operate in the power of God. So let's talk about that, because I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that idea, especially as I think about our churches moving forward in our communities. If we're going to have any effect, if we're going to have any vibrance or any ongoing life, because I'm not saying we don't have that, and and Paul's not saying that the Ephesians didn't have that. They were a vibrant and growing church, but he's still encouraging them to not forget this truth. When we operate in God's power, God can do stuff. Do you want that? I do. And it's not even about what I want, it's what the community needs. There's no B plan. There's no backup. (laughs) We're it, the church. And Paul ends this section like that. We probably will have time to come to that in a moment. God's power at work in us. But what is this mighty power at work in us? What comes to your mind when you think what it might be like to have this mighty power of God? Be honest. (laughs) Who wouldn't like to have something like the force? You know, we talked about losing the car park at the cinema. You've all all had that happen. You see a car park, you zoom around, someone pulls in. Don't you just wish you could go and their car would just fly off? Is it just me? Sorry. Or perhaps you think about the miracles that Jesus performed and wish you could do the same thing, like stretch out your arm and actually heal someone. Wouldn't that be cool? Or speak a word of restoration over someone struggling with mental illness and see healing come to their mind. How awesome would that be to see anxiety vaporise because we spoke words. Jesus did this. Or to lift your arms to the sky and make it stop raining. Or if you live in a drought-affected area, to make it rain. And hopefully there are not two Christians opposing one another, because what's going to happen then? (laughs) Or turn water into wine. 
Stop it. <laughs> let's be honest. Let's, let's be honest because we're family. Sometimes we think like this. We do. We think like this. And, when we, and, and, and we think that we, what we think about having God's power, we think about it in our lives. But I want to suggest to you that the power Paul is talking about here is not a what, but a who. Romans 8 gives us a clue which helps us to unlock this. Uh, and I'll just read it to you, Romans 8, uh, verse 9. You, however, when, uh, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit, listen carefully, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Did you see it? The mighty power that raised Jesus from death to life is the same power that is at work in your lives. And that power is the Holy Spirit. But I want to show you something from scriptures that you might never have contemplated before, which kind of, kind of not that I need backing up, but which kind of confirms this truth, because this blew my mind when I discovered this a few years ago. The miraculous and the extraordinary and the physical outworking of this power is not what you think and definitely not what you dream of. Come with me to Matthew 28. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to have a look and just kind of uh, see it for yourself. If not, just, just follow along. You'll pick it up easily. Matthew 28, uh, verse 1. You know the story so well, I'm sure. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you, the angel said. What do you notice about the power that raised Jesus from the dead in that story? Nothing. Because you can't see it. Yes, there was an earthquake. But that came as a result of the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Look carefully. The angel descends... The earth shakes, he rolls the stone sealing the tomb and sits on it. Now notice what he says to the woman who had come to visit the tomb. He is not here. He has risen. That's past tense. The power that raised him was silent and in the background. But oh so powerful. Oh so powerful. The power that raised Jesus from death to life was not some mighty explosive event and our media feeds have been full of one of those this week and please pray for the people of Lebanon. 
but it's not some mighty explosive event where some shockwave rushes out from the, from the epicentre. It's nothing like that. The power at work that returned Jesus' body, dead body, to life, he was physically dead. There's no mistake about that. The power that physically raised his body to a physical life was the Holy Spirit sent by the Father. And I could show you 20 plus scriptures which confirm that. In fact, it's an interesting study for another time. But, but God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in the resurrection of Jesus. It's fascinating. Fascinating. He is not here. He is risen. You know, one of the things that I strongly, strongly are coming to believe that renders the church ineffective in our world is our lack of understanding about how the power of God actually works. We think it's this, but actually it's quite different, I believe. You see, this power has a peculiar characteristic. It tends to only happen when you act. We want it the other way around. We want to feel powerful as if that will give us some type of courage that we need to act. But that is not the way of faith. When the time came for Joshua to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River, which is in full flood, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant had to step into the water before God caused the flooded river to cease. The woman who had a serious condition that caused constant bleeding for 12 years, after hearing about Jesus and his power to heal, she reached out and touched his robe, believing that that would be enough. And as she did it, her bleeding stopped. Now what about Peter? After fishing all night and catching nothing after the resurrection, this is was instructed to throw his net to the right side of the boat. The story makes it absolutely clear that there were no fish. But when he threw his net in, the moment it hit the water, it was full to breaking. When he did. The power of God in your life is not something to be acquired or attained, or even conjured up. The power of God in your life is already present in your life because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Does that make sense? It's a truth that we know so well as believers, and yet it's one of the truths that we don't know so well. And when you begin to exercise the gifts that God has given you in faith, then that power begins to flow, but not before, usually. We're not putting God in a box here, because God can work however he likes in your life, and I know there are examples of where, where people have acted not in faith and God has still worked through them powerfully, and I'm not going to get into the theology of that, because God is God. But, you know, predominantly, when you look through the Scriptures, and I, I dare say when you examine the testimony of your own life, you'll know this to be true, that when you step in faith, God acts on your behalf as you go. That's the way of faith. That's what faith is. And it's exactly what Paul is praying for the believers here in Ephesus. He wants them to go on being a vital and energised church. And it's exactly the kind of church he wants us to be. 
a church that makes a real difference in the community where it's placed. And I'm not saying that we haven't done that, but we need to keep doing that and understand how and why we need to do that. A church that brings peace, hope and restoration to the lives of those around us in our community, in our streets, in our workplaces, in our families. A church that operates in faith and with power as we join with God in the ongoing unveiling of his kingdom here in Kalamunda or Cumulo or Western Australia, wherever it is. Do we want to be a church like that? That's not rhetorical. Do we want to be a church like that? Yes, I pray that we do. Let's pray together. Father, give us minds. Would you stand, please? Father, give us minds ready to receive wisdom and revelation so that we will truly know who you are. Open the eyes of our hearts and let the light of your truth flood in. Shine your light on the hope you are calling us to embrace. Reveal to us the glorious riches you are preparing for us, even as we are your inheritance. Let us see the full extent of your power that is at work in those who believe. And may it be done according to your might and your power and your will. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Bless you. Thanks, Dean.